It's a trifecta. It's a triumvirate. It's a triforce. Future Vision Episode 3. Here we go. Spider-Man 3, no. man. Spider-Man 3. No. Dude, Spider-Man 3 was Sandman. the best. Oh, speaking of Spider-Man 3, a little off topic just to start things off. Did you see the Venom trailer today? Yeah, it was garbage. It looks like garbage. Total garbage. Which is sad because it's Tom Hardy. Dude, it makes no sense. The whole point of Venom is he latched onto Spider-Man first, which is why he's like a spider type. Well, do, do, do you know so why? So why, why is he Venom? No, so the reason it's happening is Sony still has ownership rights of Spider-Man as a franchise. Yeah, but, but they don't want to use Spider-Man. I don't know if they can't. I don't actually know the legality of it, but like, yeah. There's some reason why they want to use things from the property of Spider-Man without using Spider-Man proper because he's already yeah. a co-production of Marvel. Yep. So they're making this trash. That's exactly right. So Janth, what are we talking about today? All right. Today we're talking about Facebook and data and privacy. We we're originally going to talk a little bit more about AI, but uh, I think that that's going to be a separate topic on its own. I think that I mean, that's, that that's deserves its own episode. multiple topics that we could talk about. Exactly. So um, I think starting off, we got to talk about the elephant in the room, um, and that's Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to give you guys a little bit of background, uh, Cambridge Analytica is this external consultancy slash agency which uh, collaborated with political uh, candidates to help them better target advertisements, help them get elected. Yeah. But the way that they were, how the, their approach to this was a little bit sketchy. So what they were doing is that they were working with external researchers. Uh, and these researchers were building apps on the Facebook platform, which we'll go into a little bit later. And uh, these researchers were collecting data from from these apps that they were making. So imagine a researcher is trying to do a study on mood or something like that, and they made a Facebook app to help study that, then make it social so you could share it. All of the data that was collected as a result of that was then shared with Cambridge Analytica, uh, just kind of by, by uh, the discretion of the researchers. The problem with this is that as a result, uh, Cambridge Analytica had data from approximately 50 million Facebook users, and this was against the terms and uh, service for using the Facebook platform. And this is something that Facebook wasn't really expecting, but they kind of made it really easy to grab all of this data. Mm -hmm. And I think in a nutshell, that's pretty much all you, like the, the, the two minute take on what you need to know about uh, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, I, I mean, a couple little important facts on Cambridge Analytica. I mean, for one, it was co-founded or at least co-owned by Steve Bannon, who is formerly a member of the Trump administration. So that's another relevant part when it comes to their political leaning and kind of what their ultimate goal was. Um, I mean, numbers wise, yeah, they were working basically directly with a researcher at Cambridge who did a survey, which I believe they said reached about 270,000 users. And it was it was like a general personality survey. It wasn't something that was you know, it, it didn't have a clear, direct political it was purpose. Yeah, it was like one of those INTJ, whatever, the the Myers-Briggs type stuff. Yeah, something like Myers-Briggs like test. That. I don't remember exactly what yeah. it was, but some, something to that effect. And they originally claimed that like 270,000 people, I think was the number that used it. Yeah. Um, But they ultimately basically feasibly gained access to about 50 million people's data. That, yeah. that number is not a scientific number. That's something they're throwing around. Maybe it's being inflated. I don't really know. Um, But yes, I mean, ultimately what, what we found here is that one important thing with Facebook is that they do specify that they will basically open up those treasure troves of data to particular people if they are approved on their platform to do advertising or to do surveys. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, obviously they want to enforce that that data cannot be taken to any third party. It can't be sold. It can't be sold to an advertiser outside of who they already have an agreement with. Yep. 
And basically, it's almost purely for research purposes that Facebook wants to be doing this kind of stuff. But yep. the problem we're going to see is they really don't enforce it that heavily. Um, I mean, one quick thing is someone who had previously worked at Cambridge Analytica was was talking about how a couple of months later when he was basically being followed up with to ensure that the data was deleted because Facebook basically heard that this data was still being stored. Yeah. He, he just had to fill in a form and say that it had been deleted. There was absolutely no looking in from anyone at Facebook. And this Facebook has over 10,000 people who work in their security division, mm-hmm. either on green lighting content or working directly in security. That's, you know, and that's out of a company of about 25,000 people. Mm-hmm. So over a third of their entire company is based purely on security. And yet they don't have a, you know, a very well formulated way to ensure that whenever their data is being used by any third party, it is, you know, cleaned out at the end. So that's a huge problem. Yeah. And uh, one other point about Cambridge Analytica is a lot of this data was very wide reaching, right? So it was used in multiple controversial elections and multiple political things, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, So, uh, for example, uh, Cambridge Analytica played a part in Brexit. They played a part in the presidential elections. They actually, it was really interesting because Cambridge Analytica was, you know, Trump wasn't the only person that was actually using this. Actually, Ted Cruz was uh, using them as well. I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's hilarious given that he was was grilling Mark Zuckerberg a couple days ago. I know, right? So so uh, Ted Cruz was actually, uh, he, he... consulted with uh, Cambridge Analytica as well. Then again, we don't know if he was knowingly doing that. I mean, it's probably someone part of his political division who was who was doing that. Right. I, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't really something that he gave an okay with. Yeah. Or he wasn't entirely aware no, of what I mean, was happening. No, I mean, every, if you look at every candidate, every candidate partnered with some sort of a data firm in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually looked a little bit more into this at what, what Cambridge Analytica was essentially offering. Like, if I was a Cambridge Analytica person and I came to you and I was trying to tell you, hey... I'm going to help you reach uh, more people and uh, try to target your ads towards more people, right? So one of their big things was they actually uh, split people up uh, based on their personality type. So they, they created like, I think it was something around like 28 different uh, like uh, categories of people. And they they specifically were showing, hey, for this pers- this uh, this category of people, uh, you want to say you want to, you know, your political ads should talk about this. They should be structured in this way. And they were able to do that because they had all of this data and they were able to, you know, architect all of these different archetypes mm-hmm. uh, based on what was going on. And they were really able to do this because of the Facebook platform. So um, do we want to start delving deeper into what the Facebook platform is and how it works and just talking about platforms in general? Sounds good. Yeah. So um, I think starting off, uh, I think we're really in the golden age of data and data sharing right now. And uh, certainly, I mean, it's the highest it's ever been. And it's not showing signs of stopping until basically the last two weeks in which, I mean, I I, I, really quickly, I do think it's funny that I think everyone was entirely aware of these kinds of things happening. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think they were particularly worried about it. But once it was brought into a political context. Yeah. And once people were saying that, you know, Trump's election was... You know, we, we really don't know the extent to which this this played a mm-hmm. role. It's 100% certain that the Russian government was paying for misinformation that was being circulated through Facebook and other platforms. That's mm-hmm. 100% true. Yep. But I mean, really beyond that, it's purely a qualitative assessment of you know how, how much of an effect did this really have in the election. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, once this happened, obviously everyone comes out in droves 
suddenly caring about this kind of data privacy thing yeah. once it's relevant to their own re-election and something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I think we're going to delve really deep into that in just a little bit. But I think before we can get to it, I think we have to talk about applications working as platforms. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's going to be really important for our audience to learn and understand. So um, if you think about a lot of uh, software businesses that are based on data and sort of advertisements or any sort of a similar model, freemium models or anything like that. Um, I, I, you know, immediately thinking there's apps like Facebook, there's apps like Spotify, there's Google, there's uh, interestingly enough, Dropbox, right? So all of these apps, which have uh, developed uh, in kind of hit scale, they have a significant amount of users. What uh, they actually started doing around uh, kind of 2009, 2010 is they started opening up their uh, their service they for example facebook allowed people to make apps on top of facebook and uh it's the same thing with dropbox dropbox actually opened up their api and they actually tried to advertise themselves as a platform as well and it's the same thing with spotify and google and a bunch of these other companies so what they were trying to do is they were trying to leverage uh, developers and try to create all of these cool apps built on top of their platform. So that way people would come and use, use those apps and therefore stay in Facebook and use Facebook. Yeah. But the problem with this is that data is a competitive advantage, right? So the, the thing that makes Facebook valuable is that they have, uh, I actually don't know the number off the top of my head, but you know, X billion users or million users, and they have this data for these billions and millions of users and as a result, they they can leverage that against advertisers. They can leverage that against news companies and say, hey, if you want to reach all of these people, you have to play by our rules. You have to purchase our ads and you have to do all these things. Mm-hmm. When you open up the platform, you lose control of the data. And that's exactly what happened here with Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is kind of bound to happen with any of these other uh, parties and services as well. Yeah, I mean, this is something that really happens whenever you're operating at a scale in which you want to open up to third parties developing any anything to expand your, your platform. It raises the question, are you operating as a platform or are you operating as a publisher? Um, and when, when we talk about the, the political sphere, this is something that becomes especially important when it comes to Facebook. And, you know, most technology companies are very openly and clearly left-leaning when it comes to their personal ideologies, most of the people who work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has become a really contentious issue when it comes to Facebook, I mean, I know some people were saying that Mark Zuckerberg, during his testimony um, about Cambridge Analytica and the other things that were happening with data sharing, basically came out openly talking about how he doesn't view Facebook purely as a third, as a um, nonpartisan platform. Yeah. It's not a totally open platform in which everything is equal. Like, so the question is, you know, when, when you cross the threshold between being a platform and being a publisher yeah. to the point where if you're really instituting any level of moderation over the content that's being shared on your platform, you immediately are you know, drawing a line in what is acceptable on your platform. And once right. you do that, you're obviously going to alienate some people and you're going to be raising a lot of questions about what is proper freedom of speech and what is the responsibility of a business like this that is feasibly, I mean, they're supposed to be operating just a platform and just a technology. Mm-hmm. But once there's an ideology behind that technology, it becomes something entirely different. Well, I mean, this is one of those things where, of course, like culture is going to drive a little bit of that. Right. Uh, Depending on the culture that you've built and the type of people you employ, you're bound to have some level of bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, uh, built into your product and into your platform. I don't I don't want to just be that guy that's like, you know, what's going to happen. What can we really do about it? But, 
It, it, it really is. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question is what do you yeah. do about it? I mean, yeah. there have been a lot of instances recently where Facebook as a company has been held accountable for things that have been done on their platform. If, if you, if you choose to see it as a platform, yeah. like one really, really interesting thing that I found when I was looking through a Verge article was um, the genocide happening in Myanmar. A lot of people are saying that this is being largely facilitated through Facebook because Facebook is kind of the dominant communication platform in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone is using that more so than a more traditional communication method. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, you, you know, I don't, I can't speak on the politics of it, but they will say misinformation spread, you know, hateful diction spread. And, you know, basically people are emboldening other people through Facebook into their ideologies that are perpetuating violence in these places. And then it raises the question, what is Facebook's responsibility in curbing this kind of thing? Obviously, they're very aware of their responsibility. If they have 10,000 people who are basically working on moderation of content that's being put on their site, I think much more so than, you know, you talk about like a company on Reddit. You know, Reddit is a hugely influential place now. Its election rank is, I think, ninth in the world, whereas Facebook's is third. But it has 230 employees, whereas Facebook has 25,000. And I mean, that's largely because the technology and the features behind Reddit are a lot leaner. But I think a big part is when you look at the content moderation teams of both companies, Reddit doesn't take on that much responsibility when it comes to regulation of its communities. You know, it'll shut down a community when they're clearly in violation of something. But when it comes to individual posts, you know, I'm sure they have algorithms working to identify certain things, but they don't need a like fleet of people looking through content determining if it falls within particular guidelines. The Facebook model and the Reddit model are kind of completely different. They are. Because yeah. because in Reddit, you have communities that have their own moderators and have everything set up. Yes. So as a result, the the global moderators, the global CEO and, and head of Reddit, they they take more of a um, kind of ex post de facto approach where exactly. if something goes wrong, that's when they kind of swoop in and, and try to fix it. Yeah. But other than that, they let the communities kind of govern themselves, which... Yeah is depending on who you talk to, that's either a blessing or a curse. Yeah. So I'm not saying that those two are identical. Yeah. Um, I'm saying that the the way in which the platforms operate allows for them to have an ideological difference when it comes to how they regulate their content. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately for Facebook, this this is just, I mean, when you open up a platform to everyone to use, yeah. this is an inevitability. Um, and, you know, they're really finally being asked to answer the question of how are they going to properly regulate this kind of thing. Yeah. And... It's funny because a lot of Silicon Valley companies have already self-governed themselves on this matter. So, for example, in the past few weeks, Facebook has kind of – they've actually kind of crippled a lot of their own APIs. Yeah. So, uh, like right now, like if you're using the Graph API, which a lot of developers were using before to find a lot of these connections, they it's, – it's really, really hard to use right now. And it sounds like it's going to either A, just be shut down or B, B be redesigned to accommodate for a lot of privacy and for all these other reasons. Um, going back to Dropbox, Dropbox really thought of themselves as a productivity platform in kind of 2012 and 2013. And they shut down all of their APIs because they re they realized again, going back to this idea of data being a competitive advantage, that, hey, if we give all of this data out, then who's going to uh, you know purchase potential ads or buy our product? Really and, quickly, I'm just not all that aware of what's happening in Dropbox. Yeah. How, how, is, how is Dropbox monetizing their data sharing content? Like they were basically marketing what people were uploading to the site to advertisers so that they could get a sentiment analysis on like what someone is into and then advertise back to them? Or They, they haven't monetized anything on their platform, mm -hmm. um, but that's something they were potentially thinking about. Uh, in some of their earlier like video like interviews and stuff like that they're like oh for our free tier we might do ads or something like that mm -hmm. um but that's not something that was really brought into effect yeah okay 
They shut down their platform. I certainly was not aware of that, and I was just curious what no, was going on. No, Dropbox, they they shut that's... down they shut down their APIs and their platform long before that that was an issue. Okay. Um, and and Twitter uh, also is kind of shuttering down their APIs because one of the things that Twitter realized is that a lot of people create custom Twitter third party apps, um, and they kind of circumvent a lot of features and advertisements as a result of using those apps and. So it's really interesting that all of these platforms have kind of crippled their APIs in in this sense, because this sort of platform as a, or application as a platform has led to some really, really powerful and interesting things. For example, if Facebook had not exposed themselves as a platform, Spotify probably wouldn't be as dominant as it is today. One of, uh, well, one of the things that Spotify really leveraged when they came to the US is they would actually leverage Facebook. Uh, if you remember uh, the days when every time you played a song on Spotify, it would, it would pop up in your news feed or in like the top left corner on Facebook. That was actually a huge driver for Spotify. And uh, that's the way it was basically advertised to a lot of people early on. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that they're shuttering the service because essentially the, the, the same technology that was used for good and well, good might be a strong word, but used for for kind of positive things like making Spotify as popular as it is today okay. is now being shut down for some of these negative reasons. So I guess, is it is it worth the opportunity cost for Facebook? That's my question. Yeah, I mean, that's an instance where you have to differentiate between like the net social good and the good for the company itself, because ultimately these companies need to facilitate themselves and not fall under. Yeah. Um, this is a big thing, kind of a tangent, but when it comes to YouTube, you know, people are always making arguments about the new ways in which YouTube is regulating its content, you know, the new ways they've cracked down on a lot of content because advertisers don't want to be attached to any content that they don't want their products on. Yeah. And people have been really critical of YouTube with this, but the fact is, you know, YouTube has never operated at a profit and they're offering a free service to people to upload these things. So, you know, I understand that people are making a living and their careers are through this platform, but... Ultimately, they don't work with YouTube. You know, they're an independent creator. Yeah. And they're working with this existing service, and that service doesn't owe them any more than they offer. Yep. You know, if something changes on that service, obviously, when it comes to PR, you want to ensure that everyone on your service is well-informed as to when changes are going to happen. And that's an instance where YouTube's been under fire a lot. You know, they'll make changes to their algorithm or to the way they regulate content without letting anyone know. Yeah. And that's how you get these videos from, you know, people with 10 million subscribers bashing YouTube because they don't, you know. But even in those cases, so so Facebook has had a similar track record, right? So when Facebook changed the, um, it's not a, a, the, the news recommendations that appear on the right side, uh, this had a huge effect on like actual news publishers because the type of news that people were seeing was completely different and it had it, it crippled some news agencies Huffington Post are getting a lot more traffic probably. yeah yeah so is Facebook or YouTube obligated to tell their creators that they're doing this because for me it's it's not it's a symbiotic relationship but Facebook is kind of the the big kahuna here right so it's if you if you think about like an analogy to this it's it's almost like uh, you have like a an anemone attached to a whale the whale moves and it goes wherever it wants. The anemone can't really complain and, and say, hey, I want you to go left instead of going right. Yeah. You can't change the course. I of mean, the that's one instance where Facebook and YouTube are like clearly different things entirely. You know, there there's a cultural identifier when it comes to YouTube. You know, there are particular people and particular creators on that platform 
who people associate with the platform itself. So in the instance of YouTube, I think it's a lot more troublesome when they do things and they don't let creators know because those creators are not only, you know, anemones, like you said, but because the public perception of the platform itself is being drawn from these people who are advertising through the platform. Whereas Facebook, you know, is not for content creators. Facebook is for everyone sharing information. So particular people having ill will with Facebook, it's not going to have the same effect. You know, if a place that was reposting gifts that they stole from Facebook got shut down, I don't think people would have the same you know, level of uproar to the same extent as when someone gets demonetized on YouTube, um, where it's a big problem. Yeah, but Facebook is uh, a huge content creation service now. Yes. I mean, something, uh, don't don't quote me on this number, but uh, a, a sh- like a, sh- a sharp majority of news is consumed through Facebook and nowhere else. And that's a... Which is a genuinely scary. terrifying thing. Yeah, that's scary. So Facebook, whether they want to or not, they're now burdened and have this obligation to do or to police some content, which goes back to our earlier point and our earlier question of, is it an obligation? Is or not? it? Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. So I, personally, it's it's my opinion that it's never a company's obligation to do anything. So long, I mean, if I mean, it's their company, if they want to let it crash exactly. and burn, I they mean, can do I that. I mean, the question is, they need to weigh the amount of regulation that they want to put over their service so that they're able to keep the people who use their service happy without violating their trust. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a fine line in that instance. If you if you become too regulatory with content. Like I was saying earlier, if you expose a very clear political leaning, that can cause a lot of problem. If you overly police content and people will start saying it's, you know, it's reminiscent of censorship or it's no longer a platform and it's become a publisher. You know, that's something that a lot of people are worried about right now with Facebook and with all these other companies is they're being forced into a wall. You know, they need to act in some way about rogue content being disseminated throughout their system, which even with the scale that Facebook has, you know, thousands of people trying to moderate this kind of content. And the degree in which they're developing artificial intelligence to identify that content, there's always going to be a way people get around it. You know, Mark Zuckerberg said that uh, there were certain instances, I think terrorist attacks were something where they've seen a clear, you know, positive influence on using their own algorithms that have learned to identify those kinds of threats and report them to authorities. But when it comes to something like hate speech, he's like, you know, we still haven't found a way to properly identify that because that can manifest itself in a very wide variety of ways, you know. It can also manifest itself through different types of media. You know, text is much easier to do an analysis of than video, for instance, and it makes it a lot more difficult for them to properly moderate their content. And that's the question of scale is, you know, once you hit that level, if you want to police your content, but still maintain what people will at least believe is an open platform, you're going to need to develop algorithms to do it for you. And it's never going to be possible to have an exact precise way in which you can regulate that content. But even artificial intelligence is bound to have bias. That's exactly. A, that's a huge risk with AI as it is right now. And especially when you're policing content and you're policing what people are going to see and think, that's going to have huge implications down the road. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one kind of related and tangential point is the data that people generate on Facebook. And that leads to these these algorithms. That leads to all of these problems, right? In order to police hate speech on, hate speech on Facebook, you have to have hate speech on Facebook. You have to have all of this. Not only do you have to have hate speech, but you have to have uniform and clear patterns of hate speech so you can identify them in the future. Um, and if you have people on these platforms who are intentionally trying to avoid regulation, or you know they're working basically in collaboration to ensure that. 
you know, this is an instance where we can talk about that Twitter bot that Google developed, where it was basically meant to understand the sentiments and conversational styles of other Twitter users. And people intentionally manipulated that to create this abomination within less than a day. And they immediately had to take it down. Basically, like the people who have malintent and who want to abuse the system are the people who are going to spend the time to understand how the system works and how they can properly... Yeah, I mean, just to, just to give a, a, a two-minute uh, breather on this topic, how a lot of AI works is uh, a lot like how humans work. They use past data and past results and use those trends to predict or categorize new things. So if a chatbot, like what you're just describing, the only thing it hears for the last two days is hate speech... It's guess what? It's probably going to spew out hate speech the next day because that's the only thing it's learned. Another really important thing when it comes to artificial intelligence is the idea that when you want to develop an algorithm with the level of complexity needed to identify these kinds of things, it's not something that people are able to manually set all the parameters for. You know, we've reached the level of scale where the way a lot of these algorithms work is through things like neural networks and natural language processing. Basically, once you do that, you know, your original developers who are working on these things it really falls out of their hands to some extent. Often what's going to happen is, you know, they'll make adjustments to particular parameters and the weighting of different parameters that are developed by their neural networks. But the way those parameters are created is through trial and error that they don't have that much personal control over. And I think the other bigger item is you need data to to be able to figure out exactly what lever you need to change and uh, exactly how much secret spice you need to add. And stuff like that. I mean, right? that's another instance where they'll make a change and it'll cause a ripple throughout a community and people react to it. And it really is trial and error. I mean, they can't know comprehensively what these changes are going to do because the way they manifest in their platforms is not something one person can singularly understand. You know, this is not a 20 parameter algorithm where you change the weighting here and divide this by that. It's far more nuanced than that. And it's not something that any single person can mathematically disseminate and understand. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. I mean, with the way that a lot of the deep neural networks have been uh, kind of changing now, it's it's really hard to just look at well, some of the decisions that these AIs make and say, okay, here's exactly why uh, this agent made this decision. And that's actually a huge problem right now with AI. So going back to how we started out, right? Uh, one of the things I started out by saying is we're currently in the golden age of data sharing and data privacy. Uh, and I really think that this is because there's currently no regulation and no sort of, it's, it's really the wild, wild west of getting and sharing data right now. And I think that that's bound to change pretty soon. I think that we're going to start seeing regulation and start seeing uh, kind of structured approaches to how companies can access user data, how government can access user data. And uh, there just needs to be a, a potential approach to this. And uh, this is something we'll get into later, but I think that's what people were really expecting would have come at, came out of the Capitol Hill uh, visits by Mark Zuckerberg. They thought that there was going to be uh, sharp action that comes out of this. Yeah. I mean, this comes back to what I was saying about the level of complexity and the nuance in these algorithms is reaching beyond human comprehension or singular human comprehension. Mm -hmm. Now, not only take that, but... Instead of talking about someone who has a career in developing these algorithms, talk about someone who has almost no literacy when it comes to technology and try to have them create a, you know, a cohesive and understandable way in which they're going to regulate that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing this in all different, different, different walks of life when it comes to technology is 
the level of complexity and the amount of time it takes to comprehensively understand something is really beyond the realms of anyone singularly. And we're not, I don't think we're, we're spending enough time educating people, the kind of people who are going to be relevant to the direction in which those things are going. Yeah. I mean, on a totally tangent, it's just the idea that so many people who learn computer science these days are learning high-level languages. The, the the number of people who are actually learning, you know, how a machinery, machine yeah, who, interprets. Who, are, who are properly understanding beyond like yeah. writing two months so, worth of code so in a MIPS to, processor. Yeah. Like so, the amount of people at the root that control everything. Yeah. If we lost enough people who had a comprehensive understanding of how compu- how machines properly work. So I don't think anyone like understands your analogy right now. I, I think they would. No. What I'm saying is if you drill down and you drill down and you drill down and you get to a bit level understanding of these things, yeah. a very, very, very small number of people who work in the computer science sector could actually understand that kind of thing. The way that we are developing new graphic processors, the way we're developing new apps, everything, stuff like new that. apps, we, we've, we're building, we've we're, abstracted it out to make it super simple yes, for developers We're to do. building them upon... 40 years of development knowledge. Yeah. Some of that knowledge, some of some of the code that are that's existing in like enterprise systems that people use now has existed for over 20 years and nobody or very very few people at these companies understand what's going on all the way back down. And if we talk about that, if we abstract that from a technological standpoint to a policy standpoint, how you know what people are qualified to make these kinds of calls when it comes to data privacy when it comes to proper regulation of artificial intelligence. This is something that people like obviously Elon Musk and and Mark Zuckerberg are talking about a lot more. But when you trickle down to the common public and we trickle down to people who have a background in politics, these are people who understand policy. These are people who understand how to embolden people and how to pull the strings, I guess, um, for lack of a better word. But, you know, how far is that going to get you when you're working in a domain that you don't have any particular knowledge of? Yeah, so um, I think we can delve really deep into this uh, in a little bit when we talk uh, more about the actual visit to Capitol Hill. But I want to talk a little bit more in the in the realm of possibilities and kind of look at existing literature. So any potential laws that could uh, could be made around data privacy would probably have to have some sort of a link to the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, right? So the Fourth Amendment gives people a right to privacy. Uh, this, the Fourth Amendment was originally made to uh, not let King George come into your house and look around and figure out what sort of weird, crazy stuff you have. It was literally meant for physical search and seizure. It's, it's the reason why we currently have to have warrants uh, in order for a policeman to get into your house. And it, it goes even in... Uh, it's also why into... you need a warrant to get into someone's hard drive. Yeah. And the question is, you know... But but when, I think... when have we developed a new understanding of what personal property is? Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the exact question that, that I think we're going to have to deal with and lawmakers are going to spend a lot of time debating about. So um, I think an additional point that uh, that I think we need to make is there's two two very interesting cases that we need to talk about. So the first case is called Riley versus California. So this is a case that happened I think in 2012 I want to say, 
And uh, this was the first case where uh, this person, Raleigh, sued the state of California saying, hey, um, my cell phone was accessed without a warrant. Is this legal? And immediately, kind of right after that, uh, this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, um, I think, almost unanimously ruled that, hey, you need an actual warrant to do this. Even though the Fourth Amendment before was talking about physical search and seizure, you have a reasonable right to privacy depending on what the actual case is and where you are. So what this means is, you know, if you're in a public place, if you're literally at Starbucks and you confess to a crime, you could potentially get arrested for that, right? But you might need a warrant to have a recording or to be able to talk about that, uh, you know, if you're in your own house that could potentially be libel or something like that. And there's actually another case right now that's very interesting that uh, will potentially go up to the Supreme Court. And I think that this case is going to really lead the direction of data and how it will potentially exist in the future. This case is called Carpenter versus the United States, and this is currently uh, in the courts. So this case is specifically asking for cell records and uh, GPS information uh, that's stored on cell towers. So right now, when you use your cell phone, you generate data. Uh, you generate call logs, you generate uh, GPS data of where your location is. And it's not just stored on your phone. It's actually stored externally at data towers and it's stored by your carriers. Yeah, I mean, that's, so, that's another thing where we talk about what are the boundaries by which we designate something as personal property. Because yeah. when we come to data property, you, you can make a very fair argument for any data that is stored on a physical hard drive or something that is within your, you know, or if, if it was stored, you know, internally on your phone. It's, I think it's very, very easy to make the argument that that does qualify as personal property. But the vast majority of the data that we have these days is being stored basically on, on servers or on the cloud. Um, and they are password protected. Um, and you have to, you have to question like... They're, they're more than password protected. They're encrypted. Yes. Yeah, so like, does encryption... Does encryption qualify essentially as a wall to your house? Like, what what is the boundary by which we we designate something as your personal property, even if it is duplicated on someone else's servers? Like, if if you were to take a like an actual physical possession and put it out on the street, and then come back inside, and someone was going to do something with that, um, obviously, like that would not be seen as a violation. I mean, it could be, but it could be as well. You yeah. know, if someone stole your bike, and yeah, I don't know. I actually don't know the laws of that. that that's that's a question though. Like, so this what? is this is this is the current concern, right? I think I think a lot of these cases are going to really stretch. How far does the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment go, and do they need to potentially change or have any uh, additional items or any additional amendments added to them in order to meet the current digital age? And uh, one other point I wanted to add to this is with that uh, Carpenter versus United States case. So there's actually this uh, current set of laws. It's called the third party doctrine. So uh, essentially what this is saying is that data that's currently collected by external services isn't subject to warrants. So here's the problem. So data that's currently, uh, that you're currently generating on Facebook, a police officer doesn't need to generate a warrant to get that data that's externally available even though it's not in your possession. But the problem is that ex is exactly what you just pointed out. A lot of data, a lot of things that I currently own or currently generate don't live on my hard drive. They don't live on my computer. They're stored in the magical cloud somewhere. 
and I have no idea where it is. And the reason for that is the technology companies that are that are providing this hardware for you in the first place have found that the best way in which they can monetize their platforms is to basically siphon your data into their own holding so that they can use that either for advertising or for, for other research benefits. It's, I mean, that's why Chromebooks are something yeah. that exists, you know, like not, not, it's not, it's not because Google has some altruistic reason for getting rid of hard drives. You know, it's partially, it's because they, you know, they claim that they can basically decrease the cost of this kind of thing if, if they don't need it, but it's in their best interest to have as much data as possible for all of their other initiatives. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, what, what is the boundary by which that is your data and that is their data? I would make the personal argument that if you post anything publicly online, it is in the public domain and anyone can do with it however they wish. The idea that anyone would write a web scraper um, that is not, you know, once it comes to but, decrypting but, any kind of information, but those it becomes are, those questionable. Are, those are two separate things. So a web scraper can go through any sort of publicly available data. But for example, your um, privately held files on Google Drive, right? Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy with those versus what's publicly available on your Twitter profile, right? And how are these potential laws or these potential items going to be written or set to accommodate for all of these potential use cases? Because data is only going to get more and more. Data is just going to converge to be on the cloud more, not less. That is the trend. That is potentially what's going to happen in the future. Uh, whether you you like it or not. And uh, the good news is, I think that there is some recognition that the third-party doctrine will potentially have to change. Uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor already kind of wrote and said, hey, we need to rethink this thing uh, in one of her dissenting opinions for, uh, I believe it was actually for the Carpenter versus United States case or it might have potentially been the Raleigh versus California one, but she's already started thinking about this of saying, hey, this doesn't make sense for how uh, our, our future is with data. Mm-hmm. I mean, this and this comes back to like what I was saying about like the extent of public comprehension of what they're working with, because a technology company understandably is going to make the argument that so long as everything that's going to be happening with the data is outlined in the terms of service somewhere in the user agreement on the website then they are not liable for anything that happens with that data as long as they say that, hey, in these instances, your data can be collected by people. And they will say that that is just cause for them doing whatever they like as long as that there is some public notification to all other users. Um, but then there's a the question of the, 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 the pure volume that goes into like reading through all that terms of service agreement. Like, at what, at what point do we say that this is beyond the comprehension of someone and... Ha- when, when do we develop a more blanket um, level of regulation for how you're able to either disseminate this information or say, like, these are my regulations? Like, will, will there be a regulation on how you actually present your terms of service to people so that they cannot be deceived? You know, like, yeah. it's the question of how much, how much responsibility does the law have to uphold what someone considers to be the public good? Basically, it... If, if you would argue that the public good is that people do not have their data stolen beyond what is obvious. I mean, obviously, if you post something public on Facebook, you have every right to expect and you have every reason to expect that it's going to be used for whatever people want to because they can just scrape it and it's publicly available information. But once you get into that gray area where it's not immediately clear, what level of specificity do companies need to provide to users to understand how their data is being used and manifested in different ways? 
And often, even those companies don't really understand. Like you said before, when it comes to a platform, these companies don't have all that much control over this thing. I mean, you, you could see very clearly when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying for many, many of his questions that were asked, he said, I'm going to need to speak with my team. I don't know. You know, the the level of scale, not only Facebook, the level of scale that the internet has reached, it, it can't be regulated by any corporation anymore. Yeah, and even adding on to that, the reason why the internet was allowed to reach such scales is because because there was, was no regulation, regulation. they exactly. were exactly it was the wild west and they were kind of just allowed to do this and that's one of the reasons and um that's one of the reasons of why this happened right but i think there's an additional point about uh any of these potential regulations that we need to talk about and think through uh well we're not going to solve it on our own but we'll try uh future vision. i don't want to try it's all to work man we can see the future i mean if i solve it then we'd be billionaires, but I don't think we will. So one of the one of the big problems that's going to come up is uh, the, with these potential warrants is with encryption. Right now, with the way that a lot of services are encrypted or stored, if you have a warrant to decrypt uh, someone's data, so for example, with the FBI case uh, with the iPhone, I can't remember exactly uh, what it was called anymore. It was a year... This is the question of whether or not um, the government has the right to have a backdoor to people's public information on their exactly. phones. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem with that is going to end up being, if even if you have a warrant or you know something to do this, creating a backdoor with these one-way encryption methods means that you're essentially you're setting having yourself a golden up for key. anyone else. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you're you're setting up uh, malicious agents to be able to access anyone else's data. The way that. Uh, data and technology uh, is currently encrypted makes it very hard to provide one-to-one warrants to potential users. And that's going to have a lot of problems with potential laws. If, you know, in regulation, we have it in the future so that any data that's stored on a phone has to be available uh, to search and seizure via, via a warrant, then that's going to actually negatively impact encryption standards and encryption methods. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the blockchain. I mean, that's a modern example where if you really wanted the government to have full regulatory power, it would basically dismantle the entire purpose of the technology in the first place. So can that technology legally exist as long as they don't want to try to crack down on it? Yeah. Basically, any instance in which anonymity is what you're trying to preserve, that's never in the best interest of the government. That's never in the best interest of any regulatory agency. So what is the way in which you balance personal freedoms and you know the, the public good and the protection of yeah. the less knowledgeable? Yeah. Does I guess the bigger question is, does encryption go um, beyond what is a reasonable right to privacy? And that could be a potential case that actually makes it to the Supreme Court in the next 10 to 15 years. I could completely see that happening. And I don't know if you feel any different or you care. Just on it getting there? Absolutely. Especially, I mean, especially with what's happening in the news right now and with the level of media attention that's being brought to Zuckerberg and Facebook because of the political ramifications of data at this point, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see the amount of these cases expediting, you know, tremendously. Not not only, well, more importantly, not only the amount of cases going to expedite, the media coverage of these cases is going to balloon in a tremendous way. And that's really, I mean, when it comes to the public consciousness and the zeitgeist of people thinking about these things, it's really the media that's going to dictate people, you know, tuning into these kinds of issues in a way that they weren't before. 
Yeah, because it's, I, it's I very clear so. that we're seeing with the amount of coverage we're seeing right now with Zuckerberg and the Facebook trials that mm-hmm. this is something that people are interested in and this is something that corporations think is going to bring in a lot of clicks. Yeah. So I guess let's get to the the what I think a lot of people have been waiting for, right? Uh, let's talk about the, Zuck. Let's talk about the Zuck. Uh, oh, God, we have to leave that in there exactly like that. Of course. Uh, um, all right. So as a result of the Cambridge Analytica stuff that we're talking about, uh, Facebook visited Capitol Hill to talk to congressmen and talk through these potential different issues, right? So it was it was really interesting. It was very, very interesting to see what happened. Yeah, I think right. that I think that going back to your earlier point, people thought that that like this was gonna be a showdown and <laughs> like within the one week there would be a law solving all of these issues or there would be some action taken. But it was a lot of political grandstanding. Yeah, and I'm I, when I came into it, what I was really interested in is like you kind of know what Mark Zuckerberg's take is going to be. It was pretty clear that his testimony was going to be a by-the-numbers breakdown of, yes, we realize these things have happened in the past. We are trying to crack down on these things more. Here are a couple instances in which we have locked down particular pieces of data. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the really enlightening and interesting part of this entire thing is we're getting a firsthand account of the a level of literacy of congressmen when it comes to this kind of regulation. And these yeah. are the people who are actually controlling it. Yeah. And that's where the interesting stuff is. I wasn't watching for Zuckerberg. His his, his answers were all either, Senator, we run ads. I'll talk to someone. Would yes, you say we they should have done robotic? better. Hmm? Would you say they were robotic? Okay, everyone's hating on Zuck, all right? <laughs> let's, be, let's be very clear. Have you seen a picture of what was in front of his face that entire time? There are hundreds of microphones and cameras inches from him. The, the the fact that he was able to have any composure, this is clearly someone who is not an extrovert, who runs a technology company. He um, runs a billion dollar company. I think that it's it's reasonable for expe- for him to expect. You can make the reasonable expectation that he runs a billion dollar company and he should be able to present himself very well in the public light. But he runs a multi-billion no, dollar but, but he talks technology in front of company no, and he was he a talks, founder of it. He, he talks at tech conferences. He talks to the press. That's part of what he wants to do. I guess what I'll say specifically is like, do you remember when he did the Jarvis video last year or two years ago where he talked about the uh, personal home assistant that he was developing and he made kind of a a three minute promotional video of him walking around the house, talking to his wife and his kid and like Jarvis helping him. Yeah, I remember that. That was significantly more awkward than the vast majority of this. And he was in much, much more dire circumstances. So personally, I was pretty impressed with his composure. There, there right. are a couple. There are a couple of great memes when it comes to like the the smile slider. Yeah, that was a funny one. I mean, his haircut is always a a, a point of. He looks like amusement. he looks like the the robot from Star Trek. Data. Yeah, he looks yeah. like Data. He's got the Data haircut. I mean, that's just no. I mean, he's a great meme, but I think beyond people who who are making fun of his public appearance and like the way he conducts himself, I think on average he came out looking decent, in my personal estimation. Yeah. I agree with you. I think it was I think not going nearly back, as much of a meme. The yeah. meme, the meme was the congressman. Yeah. Ultimately, the funniest thing was like the congressman saying, "Like you offer a free service. You you've spoken before about basically offering a premium service in the future. How are you profitable?" And he's like, "We run ads and like little things like that, which are just yeah. illuminating that these are people who are representing thousands of Americans. You know, like half of a state and." 
they don't. I mean, yeah. even beyond that, these people have teams around them. So the fact that that question was potentially asked and not reviewed by your your team of congressional aides and members and interns is ridiculous because I bet you that your interns probably use Facebook. That's 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 a reasonable guess on my end. And kind of adding on to that, that was just one of many ridiculous questions that was asked. And I actually have a Do you have a list? I have a I have a direct quote cuz I thought that this was the craziest one. So there's this senator named Bill Nelson and he basically said, "Hey, I started communicating with my friends on Facebook and indicated that I love a certain kind of chocolate. And then he said, (laughs) all of a sudden, I started receiving ads for chocolate. What if I don't want to receive some of these commercial ads? And this same person then tried to ask Mark Zuckerberg about Facebook's advertising practices. So it's like, so so you don't understand Facebook's advertising practices and you're, you're part of this elite agency and potentially going to be drafting regulation about this and you're you're now capable and confident enough to do that like that's kind of scary i mean one of the funniest ones for me was once that i was trying to play smart and throw a left hook at him is like mr zuckberg would you mind disclosing with me what hotel you stayed at last night and he was like uh no i don't think so and he's like well you see the problem there as though he was making a point which i mean once again, I think if you're making any kind of public voluntary disclosure of information, it should be, you know, yeah, it, it can be used in any way. It, yeah. you, you are sole responsible for any information that you voluntarily put online. When it comes to involuntarily, that's that's the gray area. But I mean, what was happening with Cambridge Analytics was not really, to my knowledge, an issue of them basically mining into things that were encrypted or anything like that. It was basically just Facebook not properly understanding the way that public information that people were sharing was being manifested and used by other people. Yeah. And one thing I want to clarify is th- this also came up a lot in the congressional discussions. I think it came up something like six or eight times or something like that. It's pretty bad. Um, Facebook does not sell data. Facebook is not in the business of selling data and they have no economic incentive to do so. Facebook allows advertisers to it target rents. It rents their data. users, right? Their data is their competitive advantage, going back to my one of my earlier points. So it, it's actually very counterintuitive to give Cambridge Analytica all this data. It's actually antithetical to their business model, which is why they're actually closing down all of these APIs going to earlier or going earlier. This is why Twitter is doing the same thing. This is why Dropbox is doing the same thing. It does not line up with their corporate goals or their business model. I mean, this this was probably another instance of this was some policy that was set up five or six years ago in which at a case in which the scale of this and the understanding of privacy concerns was not at the level of nuance where they'd really care about it that much. They would say these are private researchers. They are doing things that are going to benefit the community in some sense. And in these instances, we can feel confident about sharing our information with them and not following up enough on making sure that that information is not abused in any other way. Um and yeah, like you said, we're going to see them crack down. And like those kinds of ways in which potentially altruistic ways to use this data gets a green light is going to diminish significantly because they don't really have any personal incentive to give it away to anyone. Yeah. So um, obviously kind of one of the big points that came across or that came up in, in the congressional meeting was regulation. And it was really interesting. So there's this Republican uh, senator, Senator Sullivan, and his essential point was, okay, 
So you're coming here and you're talking about how we want these things to change. And you're saying that, hey, we might potentially want some regulation around this, Mr. Zuckerberg. But isn't that scary? Isn't that going to cement you kind of at the top? Because if you have regulation for Facebook, that essentially means that there's going to have to be regulatory practices. There's going to have to be extra burden and extra effort that's going to have to be made by any potential social network coming in. So imagine, you know, all of, uh, you know, any potential social networks that are started in someone's basement, right? Are those people able to hire a security team? Will they have to hire someone to file their security regulation? And how many thousands of papers are they going to need to sign before they can even put up a hello world mm -hmm. in which people are able to log into an account and post information? Yeah. Because, I mean, if we get to the level of specificity or rather the broadness of, of these laws, it's going to be hard to interpret where they fall into line. Yeah. You know, if, if I personally make a SoundCloud clone at a boot camp test like if people are already capable of sharing personal information on that and something goes awry on my tiny little platform that i made myself and have absolutely no one else working with mm -hmm. am i you know am i personally responsible for that kind of thing yeah and and this exact experimentation and this exact lack of regulation is what's made the internet kind of so great that's what's made the internet turn around and succeed. If you go back to kind of Facebook's mission statement and kind of where their culture is built on top of, right? Facebook's mission statement is that they want to give people the power to build communities and bring the world closer together, which is kind of cheesy, but it drives a lot of their decision-making. This same power has allowed uh, a lot of great things. For example, small businesses can directly target people in their neighborhoods. That was something that was impossible or, you know, very close to not happening uh, in the last 100 years or 200 years, unless you went door to door and started knocking and doing all these things. But this exact targeting and this exact power is why uh, some of the Russia stuff has happened. It's why uh, this Cambridge Analytica stuff is, uh, has happened as well. And it's created some kind of really nasty results. So... You know, I think it comes, this whole item, this comes down to the internet, right? Do we want to regulate regulate it and potentially take away some of these missions and some of these uh, kind of large items at scale? Or do we have laws that uh, de-risk the situation altogether? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's that's the problem of regulation is if, if you want to approach it purely logically, there's really three options. It's either all okay None of it's okay, or you're going to personally basically set the boundaries somewhere in between those. And once you do that, you're subject to scale. Because once you do that, you basically need to have some kind of thing, either an algorithm or a personal moderator who's going to determine what, what falls on the right side of the line. And on the internet, that's entirely impossible, clearly, if you want to do it with any level of precision. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. And going back to kind of the laws that we were talking about earlier, a lot of these laws, like the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment, they're based on physical items, right? Like a physical expectation of privacy, of being in your own home. Physical expectation that someone can't come into your house and seize all your stuff without a warrant. And they're being stretched into the digital age where a lot of these things are potentially not owned by you. They're owned by some of these big corporations or they're stored somewhere else. And it's going to be really interesting to see where all of these th things end up and where everything stretches out to. Because... 
that's going to potentially be the biggest battle in the 21st century. And since we're future vision and we're all about kind of looking forward, what do you think is going to happen in 10 years? Like if, if you could personally make a prediction as to what level of regulation is going to exist, how that regulation is going to come about, like what do you think is going to happen? So... Because we're future vision. Yeah. This is what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And it's hard because these are really tough problems. No. Like I I said, this is beyond our own comprehension, but that's the fun of it. Yeah. So I think that I'm going to take more of like a negative angle to this, uh, especially going back to, I I think that there's a lot of precedents that are already here. And this is why I wanted to go back to those court cases of saying, hey, a lot of laws that we already have can kind of be extrapolated out to explain some of these things. But it requires uh, lawmakers to go out and potentially make some of these connections as well. So um, I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more of these like ex post de facto laws in the sense that something is going to go wrong and there's going to be a reactionary law to accommodate for that. I think that's almost 100%. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. I mean, once once this manifests itself on the political playground, that's when politics gets involved, right? I think that once, I think they give it like another 20 or 30 years when maybe, okay, maybe that's a little bit too much. But But I think that, we're going to start seeing politicians who are very entrenched in the digital age. Uh, maybe in the next, I don't see it in at least in another 10 years. You don't see in the next couple of election cycles, people appealing through their literacy and technology, either through their personal background and having at least a very, very low level understanding of how these things work. Or I'm actually more interested in, in the potential Supreme court cases that will be coming in the future because uh, unlike bills that are passed, a lot of Supreme Court decisions are very powerful and they last a very long time. So having a, again, going back to privacy, right? What the Supreme Court will define as privacy in the future is going to have long reaching impact in the digital age. And all, any of these potential cases that come up uh, are are the ones that actually get me excited over potential laws or anything that come up. So it's really interesting looking at um, like other countries and how they handle potential things. So um, recently there was a social network in China, which is very, very regulated. And um, the this social network got in trouble because of the way that their AI worked. So uh, they had a very similar AI to kind of like Facebook where it would recommend news articles to you based on your personal preferences. So the problem with this is that the Chinese government found out that, hey, if you're really into dissenting opinions into the Chinese government, guess what the AI would recommend to you? Articles about dissenting opinions with the Chinese government. Uh, And as a result... Isn't that a wonderful fishing net for them? Yeah. To basically, is, is that what it became, basically? A no. way in which they could identify dissenting opinions? No, 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 no. What ended up happening is uh, it was actually crazy because this company was doing really, really well. They had like something like a $30 billion valuation. Um, and they just the, got shut down entirely? Yeah, they got shut down and they had to uh, like do like an, like the CEO had to write like an apology letter on on his website saying I promoted like un- Chinese values or something along those lines of saying, hey, this app recommended articles that it shouldn't have and that sort of thing. So, you know, that that's really the other side to this where, you know, what do we do with something like Facebook, right? Like, do we just shut it down and tell Mark Zuckerberg, no, you can't do this because you're showing people all of this data, right? Like, 
We are on the world stage. Yeah. Facebook is the most American thing we could possibly have. So the question is, how far can it push? Yeah, I I think that the precedent that's going to be set by this could potentially be used by other countries. And I would agree, but I, I, I would assume that the president is going to lead more towards less government regulation than many other company countries. The, yeah. So the, yeah. So the problem is, is that it's going to set a potential precedent, right? So if, if America says, Hey, I want to access all Facebook data, then other countries will feel, uh, will feel reasonable that they should, if that happens, so then well. yeah, then they will say the floodgates are out. If America is doing it, then we have no reason to be frowned upon for doing it as well. And obviously that's beneficial to the countries personally. So, and unless, unless they believe that the, I don't know, the stability and the strength of their economies is going to be upset by overregulating technology. But no, if, if that were to happen, I think the vast majority of countries would follow suit. Yep. They would they would see that as a thumbs up for more totalitarian regulation of internet content. Yep, I totally agree. Which would be bad. Yeah. Bad juju. Where can I find my memes? I think that about wraps it up for this episode. I think that we'll probably be talking about this in the future. This is not just going to stop now and we're going to have a lot of developments, you know, even potentially in the next year or two. And this is still going to be an ongoing battle in the courts. It's going to be an ongoing battle in regulation. And I'm just excited to see what's next. Yeah. I mean, I I think as we continue to talk about topics like this, it's going to strengthen our interest in those topics and it's going to create a cyclical effect of us wanting to cover it more because we can cover it with more depth and explain it in better terms. So... You know, the episodes that work out best, we're going to see paying dividends in the future.